this morning. The stewardship and worship there. Grateful to Chris and particularly the testimony. You know, we often forget when we come into a worship hour that worship is threefold. It is worshiping in song. It is worshiping in the word. But it is worshiping also in that which we give back to him in our stewardship. So I appreciate him, especially once a month, calling our attention to that in these days. This morning we now come to the word of God. I, I want to say to the teenagers, you did a good job. <laughs> Some of them came back from camp yesterday down at the wilds and their voices are gone. And Jack said, you're singing. <laughs> Some of them are sick at home on the couch right now watching from home. Uh, so... Uh, I told us in the Sunday school hour, maybe to the teenagers this morning, don't give them a hug, give them a wave, because especially those boys living in those birdhouses and those unair-conditioned petri dishes that they lived in all week, uh, you never know what they brought back. They don't even know what they brought back. So uh, some of you moms are nodding your head. You've been doing laundry all last night, getting the stank out of the clothing. And some summer stank cannot be evicted. <laughs> There's no amount of Tide or their pods that will get rid of it. So we're going to turn our attention this morning back to the principal parables. I appreciate your patience. Uh, sometimes when as a pastor you set out to preach on things, I had intended to finish all of the principal parables before we got to the different homes. But then I kept finding more and more principles that I wanted to preach. And then I realized I'm just going to preach all of the parables that are found in the Gospel of Luke. But then I realized I don't have time to schedule for that. And so what we did is we did the 10 weeks for the different homes starting back before Mother's Day. And that interrupted our particular series here uh, in the Gospel of Luke. And just for our purposes this morning, let me remind you of the principles of the parables that we've already looked at here from the Gospel of Luke. We looked at first the new and the old. And that was the idea of the old, uh, the new wine and the old wineskin. And the principle that we studied all the way back in February from Luke chapter 5 and verse 36 was that of discernment. If you're going to be a healthy Christian, you have to have the ability to discern what is right and what is wrong. And that old wineskin and the new wine in it are important for us to understand. The second message was seeing clearly, and that was on spiritual vision from Luke chapter 6 and verse 39. The third message was on my sins are gone in Luke chapter 7. Verses 41 through 47, and it was on forgiveness. We preached that one at the end of February. We then looked at the seed and the soil from Luke chapter 8, verses 4 through 15. And that message was about truth. The principle in that parable was the truth of God's word can change us. The next message we looked at was loving our neighbor from Luke chapter 10, verses 30 through 37. The principle that we studied in that was grace and mercy. Oh, if we were a world filled with Christians who practice both grace and mercy, it would be a different world. You say, oh, we'd get run over as Christians if we were truly gracious and merciful. No, no, we would have a powerful and dynamic witness if we were gracious and merciful to others. The next message we looked at was teach us to pray, and that was Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13, and obviously the principle was prayer in that. Then we looked at, uh, at Luke verse, uh, chapter 11, verses 14 through 54, and the role of light. God's word is the light that we have, and it shines in a dark place. We looked at the concept of life is more in Luke chapter 12, verses 15, 23, 
40 and verse 48. And we look there at priorities. What are your priorities? What should my priorities be? We then looked at three lessons of faith from Luke chapter 15. And of course, of course, the principle was faith. The last message in the series was a sermon called Supper Time. And it was taken here from the beginning of Luke chapter number 14. In verses 7 through 24, we find that fellowship or the principle of fellowship is essential for us as Christians. That was preached in April on the 24th. And that's where we pause our series on principal parables. Well, this morning we come back to Luke chapter number 14, and we begin again in verse number 25. The Bible says this, it says, And there went out, and there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Here are the parables, by the way. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest haply, or perhaps, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build, was not able to finish. Or what king is going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first, and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Now that's the third time in this passage he's made that statement. He concludes by saying this in verses 34 and 35. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghill. But men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Father, this morning, as we come to the word of God, I pray that you would help us to know the truth. Help us to see it and to do it. Lord, as we understand what it means to be a disciple, I pray that none of us in this place who know Christ as our Savior would ever say it's just not worth it. And we understand the discipleship truths that you will give to us in this very passage of Scripture. Guide my heart and my mind this morning. I pray that you would soften and mold the lives of these, your people. In Jesus' name, amen. We noted in the beginning of this series, a parable is a story that conveys a moral truth. Jesus often taught in parables. A parable literally is the idea of this, something that is cast alongside. So it is a truth or a story that is cast alongside what is true. Jesus' parables were stories that cast alongside a truth in order to illustrate or drive home the principle in that truth. And so this morning, we're moving to the end of Luke chapter number 14. In this chapter, we find Jesus in the role first of a guest at the beginning of the chapter, then as a host when he has a great supper, beginning in verse number 16. But towards the end of this particular chapter, we find him as the master. He's no longer the guest. He's no longer the host. In verse number 25, Jesus pivots, and he shows us that he is the one in control. He's the master. 
It is in this final role that we find our text for our worship this morning. Here, Jesus addresses discipleship truths, and it's important for us to see these discipleship truths. Christ has called us to be disciples. He's done it over and again in the gospel accounts. This particular passage is Luke's definitive account of God's personal call for you and I to be disciples of Jesus Christ. So this call is for each of us who know Jesus as our Savior this morning. Let me say this. There is a great multitude who have followed him in verse 25. There's a lot of people in this world that will claim to be Christians. There may even be some people in this world who are believers in Jesus Christ. But what we're going to find out is there are very few who are willing to be disciples. That's the truth for this morning. The truth that we must come to. Cults, politicians, movements of this sort or that all have followers. Jesus, God the Son, wants disciples, not just followers. In other words, what differentiates us from a club or a society or some kind of cultural movement? And friend, there's a lot of them in this world today. You can sign on to any number of Sane and seemingly now insane ideas. The word disciple here is the idea of a learner or a pupil. I put at the beginning of your notes this morning a definition from Easton's Bible Dictionary. I thought it was a really good one. It has four aspects to it. It says there, a disciple of Christ is one who believes Christ's doctrine, who rests on Christ's sacrifice, who imbibes, that means absorbs into themselves. If I drink something, it's called imbibing on that. And so as I take that drink into my body, the fluid becomes part of who I am. It's sustaining to me, or it could be draining to me in the forms of some drinks. But as I imbibe, it means to absorb or assimilate his spirit. And the fourth part of the definition that Easton gives is that we as disciples imitate Christ's example. Here's what Jesus said in another gospel, John 8 and verse 31. Then Jesus said to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, or for sure. It's the process of continuing, not just in the daily reading of it, but in the daily living of the word. He said, If you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. If you're a Christian this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, and every part of the Christian life seems to befuddle you or to confuse you, may I say it is time for you to move from merely being a follower to being a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Because only then are you free indeed. The word of God and truth then, according to John, and his writing there of Jesus' words, are inextricably linked. Jesus, in our text here in Luke 14, seeks to drive home a point for his disciples, and he also begins to drive away the easy-going multitude. Oh, I realize some of the things that I'm going to say this morning on discipleship and the truths that Jesus gives to us may offend a nominal Christian, and I'm okay with that. My responsibility as a pastor is to lay truth before you. Your responsibility as a believer and a follower and ultimately a disciple of Jesus Christ is to take that truth into your own life and act on it. Here's the point. Discipleship is a serious undertaking. Weak-minded Christians need not 
apply. That's what Jesus said beginning in verse 26. We have enough weak-kneed, weak-minded, weak-willed Christians. We don't need any more. We need disciples. So let's begin by understanding these discipleship truths by seeing discipleship shocking truths this morning. Verse 26 might be one of the more shocking verses in all of the Bible. God, who established husband and wife at the beginning, who from that blessed that children should and would come from that holy union, he here says to us, I want you to hate your father and mother. Now, sometimes in this world, because families are so bankrupt, so morally askew, so ethically wrong, it is easy for a child to say, that's fine, Pastor, I can hate my parents. But it is absolutely opposite of everything the Bible teaches. And so this statement is very shocking from Jesus. He means it to be shocking. He means for it to effectively smack us right up across the face and say, what, what did you just say? I mean, you can imagine the multitude who had been fed by him before who are now following him and eating up every word to say with a mommy and a daddy that are there, Jesus said, hey, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to hate your father and mother. Cover your ears, Johnny. Don't listen. It's shocking. How do you make sense of this verse? What sense is there to draw from this particular verse of Scripture? If you want to be my disciple, then hate your mother, hate your father, hate your family, and he even says, hate yourself. Sometimes we are good at hating ourselves, aren't we? Is this what Jesus is saying? What are we to make of this statement? The word hate here literally means to detest in the strongest sense. It means as well to love less than another in the general sense. So we can understand what Jesus is telling us here. In the New Testament, this is the equivalent of what Exodus chapter 20 and verse 3 says. Jesus' shocking truth for discipleship is drawn directly from the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Make sure you get that this morning. Your wife, your husband, is not more important than Jesus Christ. Your children or your parents are not more important than Jesus Christ. And if you believe that your husband or your wife or your children or your parents or your grandparents or the love of your life, your girlfriend or boyfriend, is more important than Jesus, you need to wake up to true discipleship. You need to be poked in the nose by the word of God this morning. We find letter A in our notes, discipleship challenges our relationships. There's no escaping it in this verse. There is a great threat to the dominance of a person if they have the chief seat in our life. If there is somebody that's the most important person that I could ever imagine, that person needs to be unseated and Jesus Christ needs to be put in that chair. That's what Jesus is telling us. Listen, if you don't love me supremely, if you do not love me more than these, if you don't love me in such a way that it appears that you love them less or that you hate them, that you detest them, it does not mean that we go around detesting people. We are to 
Jesus, how much we trust Jesus, how much we're willing to follow Jesus, how much we're willing to listen to Jesus, what we are willing to have Jesus tell us to do and then do it. We have to have a supreme love for him. In comparison, all other relationships is a second Jesus here is not devaluing or depreciating our love for our family and friends. No, he is challenging us to set them below our relationship with him. Abram, Joseph, Samuel, David are all Old Testament saints who immediately come to mind when we think of those who set love for their family as secondary to a love for God. That was under the Old Testament law. Our discipleship is built upon grace. That came in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so we understand that all other relations must take a second seat. I know years ago when I talked to my dad about going on church staff in Virginia. I was leaving, working at the Pentagon. And heading on a church staff. That he and my mom were on board with me serving the Lord in that capacity when I chose to depart from the secular world and enter into sacred ministry. But can I tell you something this morning? Even if they had said to me, Kyle, we think you're making a mistake. We can't support you in this. I still would have done it. Why? Because I knew where God was leading me in the next steps of my own personal discipleship. The next steps that I needed to take in my own walk in ministry. If my wife, I wasn't married then, but if my wife had said to me, I don't think we should do this. I would have taken maybe a bit more time so that she's on board. But if I knew this was what the will of God was, I would do it. That's what the Bible teaches here. That's what Jesus is telling us. So you must ask yourself this morning, is there a relationship with a family member, with a friend that is holding me back from walking ever deeper into a relationship with Jesus Christ? If the answer is yes, that relationship must go. But, but, but it must go. They are inhibiting you from walking in a deeper relationship with the God of the universe who took on human flesh, who died for you, who rose so that you can be victor victorious. If you cannot put him in the chief seat, you have a problem. Right. Discipleship. Maybe it's a co-worker, teens, maybe it's a friend. It does not matter who that person is or what they mean to you. Nothing, Jesus says, is more important than this. It's truth, and it's shocking. Because it makes us sound like, in the world who does not understand, says, you people are cultish. No, a cult follows a man. We follow God. And when you follow God, you understand God's divine perspective. Listen, that relationship that you want to have so badly with someone that you're putting before Jesus Christ, that relationship, if they know Jesus Christ, that relationship can go on for eternity. And in heaven can go on in perfection in eternity. But you only have one life to live for Jesus Christ to demonstrate your ultimate, true, whole devotion to God and God alone. And that's this life. Right. And if Jesus Christ doesn't have first place, friends, I'm just going to tell you, he has last place. I always tell my boys this all the time. Second place is first loser. That sounds a little harsh, right? I know in the kids' groups now they just need this trophy for everything. But the reality is if Jesus isn't first place, then he is of no place in your life. 
Because there's something more important than I will do anything Jesus says until this person tells me otherwise. Jesus says, look, if you love your father, mother, wife, children, and brethren and sisters, yea, his own life also, more than me, you cannot be my disciple. That is a definitive statement. It is shocking. But it's true. Letter B, we find in verse 27, that discipleship changes our reality. Look, if it changes our relationships, it's also going to change our reality. You know, reality before Christ was make me happy. Be content. I'm just going to live for whatever I want. And if you've gotten saved and that reality has not changed, then you're not a disciple of Jesus Christ. Well, Pastor, I wanted to come and be puffed up this morning. I'm sorry. I am the chief deflator of your ego today. By the way, when I preach, I usually preach first to deflate my own ego. Do you know what your life is in Jesus Christ? It's cross-bearing. We put a cross up here always in the front of the church auditorium, and when you look at that cross and you consider what it stands for, no one would willingly just walk around the workplace all day with a big wooden cross on their shoulder. But Jesus said, if you're going to be my disciple, you're going to go everywhere with that, perhaps metaphorically, but being the true reality, with that about your shoulders. If you know that you are dead in your trespasses and sins, and you know that that sin sends you to hell, what good is there to keep living in it? Yeah. Rather, what we should do is walk around with the shame and the surrender that the cross symbolizes. And realize that Jesus bore that openly for me, and I bear that life willingly for him. Discipleship to Christ, friends, is no easy undertaking. It will quite literally kill you. Paul tells us that he has to mortify the deeds of his flesh. This, friends, is the key to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Your life is no longer yours. No believer who will wholly serve God or will wholly serve God until they realize that they love God more than they love themselves. That's what he finished verse 26 saying, and he takes the whole idea into a deeper truth in verse 27. You must love his word, his wisdom, his way, his work, his will, more than you love your own word, your own wisdom, your own way, your own work, and yes, even your own will. The reality for a disciple of Jesus Christ is that we emulate Christ in every way. Amen. We bear our cross and mortify the deeds of our flesh so that we can live victoriously through the resurrected life of Jesus Christ. If you're not willing to bear your cross, then you will never be able to live in resurrection life. The problem for most Christians, we get saved, and we just want all of the honeycomb of the resurrected life. But we don't want any of the difficult struggle of putting off our old sinful selves. The death and burial of Jesus Christ are no more important than the resurrection. If I'm going to crucify my old man, there had better be a new man that I can live in. And there is. But it starts by crucifying the old man. A lot of Christians live, lives, excuse me, are wasted on pathways between God's way and our way. It's somewhere in between. Our path and God's path are totally divergent paths. You may keep your feet on both paths only in the moment of salvation. 
And after that, every decision from the moment you ask Jesus Christ to save you, your feet should be traveling God's path only. That's what he says here. He says, look, the pathway and the pattern that I've laid down for you is that you must crucify your own will. That's the hard part, Pastor. I know. I get it. I know. Paul writes expressly about this shocking truth in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. He says this, but what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Can you say that? Go back to verse 7 for me, Scott. Can you say that? What things were gained to me? Stop and think just what those things are in your own personal life. We have a congregation or a church size now above 250 to 275 if we are all here on the same Sunday. I dare say that if I asked 250 people, we might get 230 different answers as to what it is they consider gain to themselves. And God says, I don't care what you consider gain to you. Count them as loss for me. Does that mean I have to give up my job? No. But if that job is more important than God, or being with people of God, or doing the work of God, or being in the word of God, or accomplishing the will of God, then most definitely, yes, give it up. Count that gain as loss. Yea, verse 8, doubtless, and I count all things but loss, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. The word knowledge there means experiential knowledge. That is what Jesus is saying. You've got to bear your cross. I want to know Christ as Christ knew Christ. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, that you count them but dung. Look, that word dung is a very, very, very disgusting word. We had to laugh. We were out at Stephanie's uh, not long ago, and Avery told Miss Jessica, I'm not allowed to go down near the fence because that's the poopy line. <laughs> they have a lagoon with it. And Avery says, there, but there's a lot of frogs down there. <laughs> <laughs> that's the word dung. Mommy is very wise to tell her, don't go near that pond. You don't want to go walking barefoot through that one. And Paul says, look, I count everything that I used to think was success literally as refuse that comes out of my body. Do you think that way? What does it do when you do think that way? You win Christ, he says. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law or obedience, but that which is through the faith of Christ. The righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. He's not hoping that someday he'll be raised again. He knows that he'll be raised to new life. He's saying that I want to live in the fullness right now of resurrection life. And the only way you get to the fullness of spiritual resurrection life is dying to yourself first. You gotta change your reality. Discipleship's shocking truth is that our relationships will be challenged and our reality will be changed. The second truth of discipleship that Jesus teaches us here is this discipleship's sufficient truth. Verses 28 through 33 are wonderful parables. Brother Mike will be preaching tonight 
picking back up and continuing in the series on biblical stewardship. He has for years. I have at least three notes written in my Bible from the years that I've listened to him as a member of the church here and when he preaches. So if you're not a normal Sunday nighter, come back tonight. You will thoroughly enjoy and be refreshed and strengthened in your spiritual walk and stewardship. But I've got lots of notes. And so, of course, we know that these two parables deal with stewardship. But I must at least say at this point, they fit in the concept of stewardship of discipleship. It is a steward who is a disciple. It is the concept of if you're willing to wholly buy in to being a disciple of Jesus Christ, then there's going to be a process of sufficiency that you can depend upon. There's going to be a sufficiency that you can lean on. There's a sufficiency that you can trust. Jesus uses our two parables here to teach us where our sufficiency is found in being a disciple of Jesus Christ. The word sufficient or sufficiency just means adequate in supply or service. The root word suffice means to have enough to meet whatever the need is. So Christ says to us in parable form, and the principle we draw from it is that if I'm a disciple, I can trust God. That's the sufficient truth. Oh, there's things that I need to do. There's some T's and Q's that I got to watch. There's some T's to cross and some I's to dot. But I can trust his sufficiency. You see, if he just told us that our reality changes, we're left kind of wondering what's next. And he says, don't worry about the shocking statement. Trust in the sufficiency statement that is coming up. It's sufficient. His grace is. God is all sufficient. Christ, God the Son, provides all sufficiency for those who want to be his disciple. The first sufficient truth is this, letter A, discipleship makes maturity possible. Verses 28, 9, and 30 tell us that maturity, grown-up Christian living, is possible. The man's building a watchtower. It's likely that he's building a watchtower. The context of the tower and the battle seem to go together in the mind of Jesus. They, uh, they come one after the other. And if a man is building a watchtower, he might be building a grain tower. We don't know which tower. But if he's going to build the tower, he's going to have to make sure that it's done in the right way. That it makes it to perfection, makes it to completion, makes it to maturity. If he doesn't make it to maturity, then everyone is going to look at that person who journeys down the path of discipleship and say, what a joke that person is. Yeah. Now pause for a second. Think of your own Christian walk. How many times have you begun the process of, I'm going to walk with the Lord. I'm really going to trust Jesus. And it lasted a week. A month. If you're lucky, a year. Discipleship is not... It should not be two step forward, one step back. Discipleship should just be one step after one step after one step, drawing ever nearer to who Jesus Christ is and what God would have for you. This is the maturing that God wants to do for us. The tower being built is the watchtower of a mature Christian life then. Don't start unless you're willing to pay whatever price is necessary to be my <laughs> disciple, Jesus said. Don't start building this tower if you're not willing to finish it. Oh, there were many, many days, months, years of my own life where I did not understand this concept. And there were many instances where my own Christian faith was openly mocked to my face because I was not a disciple of Jesus Christ. Do not sit here and think the pastor is above living or failing in these verses. 
But the process of discipleship is yours to make. Some might say, yes, I'm willing to do it, but what is the price? It means everything up to and including your life. If we understand verses 26 and 27, they are the context of discipleship that bring us into this process of how we manage or steward the disciple's life. Mature Christians can say with old Job, back in Job chapter 13 and verse 15, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Job finishes answering his friend, but I will maintain mine own ways before him, before God. In other words, I'm accountable for me. So I ask you then this morning as your watchtower of discipleship is being built, what difficulty has God asked you to endure? So I didn't want that difficulty. I didn't ask for that setback. I didn't ask for that disappointment. I understand, but that's part of the cost of discipleship. He loves us with an everlasting love, and he is building into us through his sufficient grace what he wants us to be. And so what comes our way is of his hand, and we are able to add brick after brick after brick to the, until we become the fullness and stature of Christ himself. The watchtower. What career change must I make? What financial decision lay before me? What relationship must I end? What leadership must I engage in? What skill, what talent, what gift must I exercise within the body for the betterment of our Savior, Jesus Christ, at work on earth? I'm willing, you might say, to put in or give up the necessary resources of time, talent, and treasure to become a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Are you? It's a dangerous thing to say you'll help, you'll do, you'll be, and then not. Often we hear, yes, sir, pastor, I'll come to church and serve, serve, serve. That's not the sufficiency that we're talking about. The sufficiency to build the tower comes from the, the sufficiency of the scriptures and the sufficiency of spirit filling. That's what's being talked about. It's not just, well, I filled my role. <laughs> I gave sufficient service to the Lord. No, the sufficiency we're talking about here is the sufficiency of who God is to enable us to do what we need to do. The more you try to become a disciple of Christ in your own ingenuity, the worse the watchtower will look. We've lived in four different houses that we've owned in the time that we've been here in Kentucky. And every playground has gotten a little bit better that I've built for the boys. The first one, you would not have trusted your kids to go on. <laughs> because I was a terrible playground builder. But after four, I've gotten good enough that your kids could feel safe on it, right? But that's often what happens in our Christian life. Well, I tried, and whoo, I just failed a lot. But, you know, God loves me, and... I'm going to stick out in there. I guess it'll work. Jesus will take it. Is that how you're serving God? Is that how you live for God? Is that your discipleship? Why don't we trust in his sufficiency to do the work in his grace through his power? And I, I'm convinced you'll be amazed if you wholly sell out to God in your service to him. What kind of tower he will build for you. Kind of tower he will build through you. If your sufficiency is drawn from God and his word, then you will build a mighty watchtower that will do unimaginable good for the Savior and for the cause of Christ. Far too many Christians, I'm convinced, are half-built watchtowers of their own design and desire. What Jesus wants is for us to count the cost 
He says that we must sit down and count the cost, whether we have sufficient to finish it. He is our sufficiency. Are we depending upon that sufficiency? Here's what he told Paul when Paul was struggling with his own sufficiency because of his own physical limitations and his own setbacks. He said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in what? Weakness. Listen, disciple, if that's who you want to be, you're going to have seasons and perhaps sometimes great seasons of weakness. The apostle Paul had seasons of weakness. Are we better than he? Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities or in my weakness, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Discipleship makes maturity possible in the first parable given. But let her be discipleship makes victory paramount in the second parable given. Sometimes we are reading verses 31, 2, and 3, and we begin to think that we should make a deal with the king who has 20,000 soldiers. That's not at all what Jesus is teaching or telling us here. He's simply saying to us, some of us get in the middle of the conflict, we get in the middle of the spiritual warfare, and we cry, uncle! Right? I was in a long line of boy cousins. My sister was the only girl, and as one of the middling cousins, whenever we would go to my nan's house, I would get beat to a pulp until I cried, Uncle! Why? Because I was sending an ambassador. I was crying for someone that was older and bigger than these goons to come and help me. We find Christ here not telling us to give in to the king who has 20,000. He's saying, look, your sufficiency is drawn from me in this battle. But if you want to call it quits, if you want to throw in the towel, you've got to go make a deal with the devil himself. Now, Pastor, if you say it that way, I don't think I like that. Well, don't like it. You should hate it. You should detest the idea. The disciple is ultimately in control, in control of the battle here. You have sufficient forces, even if you are outnumbered. And I can tell you this morning that in this world, we are all outnumbered. It doesn't feel like it in this place. By the way, that's the beauty of coming to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. You can come out of the unnumbered, outnumbered foes and come into a great host of friends where you can spend time together and say, oh, I'm not the only one fighting this fight. I'm not the only one trying this. Your sufficiency, friends, like Gideon of old, is from the God above you, not the resources around you. That's what he's teaching us here as a disciple. The enemy king, Satan, will marshal the world and his horde of demons against you. Will you conquer in Christ's sufficiency, or will you quit in your own deficiency, is what this parable is teaching us. The ambassador of peace seems to make sense if you're outnumbered, but the disciple of Jesus is always outnumbered in this world. Don't take that route. Trust in the sufficiency of Christ. As you draw near to him in discipleship. Jesus concludes by saying you cannot win unless you are willing to let go of everything in this world. He says in verse 33, so likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath. By the way, if you forsake all that you have, what do you have to trade with the enemy? The 
The problem is we hold stuff back from God because we're not committed to holy being his disciple. Well, I'll keep this, and I'll just make a deal with the devil on this because it's just getting too hard to be a Christian. I'll see you, church at Bluegrass. I'll see you, Christian friends, in another three, six, 18 months. I'll be back. I promise. And you make a deal with the devil. Again, the stewardship principle is abundant in these two parables, but the stewardship is within the larger concept of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Are you willing to manage the resources that God has given to you? In this instance, it's the sufficiency of who Christ is. The disciple realizes that, as the old hymn says, victory is in There are far too many believers who are of the multitude and too few who accept the truth of discipleship that Jesus has given to us. The shocking truth scares them. The sufficient truth eludes them, which brings us to our final truth, and that is this. Discipleship's faulty truth. Sometimes I really like when the outlines lay out perfectly. I don't know that I've ever had a point in preaching that's been faulty, but here is one. You can go home today and say, my pastor preached a very faulty message. It's the truth. Sometimes we don't peg verses 34 to 30 and 35 into this parable or these two parables and into this concept, but it is. It's still within the vein of discipleship. It's in the same linear conversation. Jesus does not break his cadence. He doesn't break his stride. And Dr. Luke records for us what the truth of the matter is. Jesus uses this analogy of salt to tie together the Beatitudes of his sermon on the uh, Sermon on the Mount. If you were to go to Matthew chapter 5, after the Beatitudes, you would find verse 13 says this, Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is hence, or thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. Do you know what salt was in Jesus' day? Salt was a form of payment. It was payment in the Roman world. Roman soldiers were paid using salt. Thus, we get the old euphemism, a man isn't worth his salt. salt. Well, what are you saying? You're saying that that man was a poor soldier who wasn't worth his salary. You ever worked with somebody like that? They'd be stealing from the temple. So why would Jesus tie discipleship to salt here? Why would he tie his beatitudes to salt here? And the answer is because Jesus is making the argument that his disciples are his salt. Stop and let that sink in for just a moment. We are very literally Christ's payment for his work on the cross of Calvary. If salt is the payment, then you being a disciple is payment back to Jesus for all they endured. Look, the book of Hebrews chapter 12 says that he, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. What was the joy? The joy was you. The joy was me. We are his salt. We are his payment. Oh, my. Well, that changes this a lot. This truly is a salty truth, one that can dig deep and cause wounds and heal us. What did Christ earn by dying for sin? I put in your notes, us. That's why he starts by saying, salt is good. It's beneficial. Who's it beneficial to? It's beneficial to him. 
Why do we gather and worship? Why do we try to glorify him? Why do we stick to the word of God and not attempt to entertain you this morning? Why do we do all of these things? Because we want his work on the cross of Calvary to be worth it all. Letter A, that good disciples are righteous. Letter A, good disciples are righteous. Salt is good. What good can we bring to our Savior Jesus Christ as his disciples? What is our salty truth? And the answer is as righteous, as good, we have a preserving role. Salt would preserve the soldier's food. The spiritual food for this world is the bread of life, the word of God. If we are to be righteous, we are to rightly divide and rightly do the word of God before the eyes of the world. You cannot be a good disciple of Jesus Christ and not do the word of God. Let me say that again this morning. You cannot be a good disciple of Jesus Christ and not do the word of God. It's not possible. Your job is to preserve this world. Seven billion people and the preservation of the world wholly depends upon people being good salt. Good payment to Christ. Hey, if you look at your job as a Christian that way, you'll probably stop swearing. You'll stop, probably stop watching all those lewd television shows. You'll probably put away all the dirty movies that you watch or the filthy music that you listen to. I mean, after all, what is that adding to your life? How is that making you any better? The answer is obviously it isn't. You see, when you look at discipleship just in plain terms, it's really easy to understand. The problem is we get to that point and go, ah, I'm not sure I want to do that. We get hung back up at the shocking truth. We never trust in its sufficiency, and so the salty truth can never become a reality. The second thing that salt would do would purify. It had a purifying role. Salt purified the soldier's wounds. The great wound in this world is what? Sin. Sin, James tells us, bringeth forth death. Our duty as salt, our function is to cure, purify, and restore what a sinless life actually can look like. Can anyone look at your life and say, boy, that would be what I would be if I wanted to be a Christian? Most of the time, people look at our lives, especially with the modern church movement, they look at Christians, air quote, lives, and they say, it looks just like mine. What's, what's different about it? What's significant about that life? There's no change in that person. <laughs> All right, I'll take Jesus too. That sounds sweet. Look, if we trust Jesus Christ and the life of Christ is wholly different, it's a mortified life to our own self. It's wholly different. Then people are going to look at us and say, there's something different about you. That's the purifying role of salt. The wound of sin is salved and cured through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we are the body of Christ that takes the message of the blood out into the world. 
There are no other groups of people who can purify this world according to the word of God or the work of God other than believing disciples of Jesus Christ. None of them. A Buddhist can't do it. A Muslim can't do it. A Mormon can't do it. An atheist can't do it. An agnostic can't, can't, can't do it. There's nothing that they can offer that actually cures the problem. We have it. And it's through your faithful discipleship that you demonstrate it and deliver it to them. So the question is, are you good salt? Are you a good payment to Jesus Christ? By the way, we can find the culmination of that payment in heaven where the Bible says we will take our, our crowns that we earn on this earth and we will give them back to Jesus. I often wonder what it's going to be like for the person that gets to heaven and reaches for their crown and goes, oh, I, I don't have one. I mean, is Jesus going to go, I mean, we kind of joke about that or we talk about that. But boy, when you start to really think about that, you think, well, I don't think I would like that day. And I can promise you, you won't. Yeah. But I'll be in heaven. Yeah, good for you. But I can promise you on that day, the God of the universe standing personally before you saying, what, what was it you got out of me? Oh, eternal life? Okay, what did I get out of you? Oh, nothing? Well, come on in. That's a terrible thought, isn't it? Yeah. It's a terrifying thought. One of the motivating thoughts that brought me out of the secular corporate world into the sacred world because I thought, what, an, what on earth am I doing for Jesus Christ? Well, under B, there are those that are bad disciples, and the bad disciples are removed. From heaven? No. We'll see. You can't lose your salvation. But friend, there is nothing worse than a follower of Jesus Christ who is unwilling to bend their will to in obedience to him. Jesus Christ flatly asked, wherewith shall it, the salt, be seasoned if it's lost its savior? Who can help it? He asked. They are salt, thus they are saved, but they have lost their usefulness because they could not accept the shocking truth, nor did they learn the sufficient truth, and thus they face a salty truth in their own existence. The believer who forsakes Christ's pathway of discipleship becomes ineffective in every way to teach others of who Christ is. Disciples will always help the body of Christ to grow. Those who are not willing to be his disciple will not help the body to grow. They are like the useless vine that will not produce fruit in John chapter 15. There the Bible says that they are cut off from the branch, that is, in Christ, which is the body, and men will cast them into the fire. Here it says that men cast out the salt. It doesn't say God casts it out. He doesn't change their nature again. They are still salt. They don't cease being salt because what is God's is God's, but they stop being useful in any way. Mankind will actually cast aside anything that that useless salt tries to say, tries to teach, or tries to implore. Good luck if you live like the devil your whole life and then try to tell somebody what Jesus really wants. They're not going to listen to you. Why would they? I wouldn't listen to you. It's like the actor who's done the immoral, obscene, vulgar movies who then tries to tell you that they're a Christian and that you should listen to their values. Or it's like the athlete who has five baby mamas across the country and lives with a girl that's not even his wife now and tries to thank God for blessing him. Or it's the politician who votes to murder babies and dares to lecture us on what Jesus would do for society's ill. Or it is the member of Bluegrass 
who openly engages in all manner of ungodliness and unholiness within the week, then struts into church trying to correct the pastor on his teaching or instruct other believers in what is right. Nobody's going to listen to you. But that church just doesn't care about it. No, we love you completely. But if you're living like a devil, you don't love Christ completely. And you're going to feel out of touch here. I know that. Pastor, this isn't a good message to grow the body here. The answer is this is a perfect message that will grow the body. Men take that kind of salt, they cast it aside. Why? Because they have lost their savor, Jesus says. How did they lose their savor? The answer is because they lost focus of their Savior. So in closing this morning, Jesus teaches us that discipleship to him has a shocking truth, a sufficient truth, and a salty truth in it. Jesus was not trying to frighten everyone away. But he did want to separate out those who had not counted the cost and who would quit when the going got tough. My job as a pastor is to build up this body to the fullness and stature of Christ, as I said earlier. That is my one job. Ephesians chapter 4, part of my oversight and feeding of this flock is to make sure that you can do the work of the ministry so that the whole body is edified and built up together. Amen. That's what the Bible tells me in Ephesians 4. So I'm not trying to frighten you this morning. But I am trying to get us to commit to being disciples of Jesus Christ. Notice this morning I've never said anything about curriculum or meeting with somebody once a week to do Bible study discipleship. Discipleship is far greater than just a book. But it's never greater than just this book. It's taking everything it says and doing it every day of your life. Thus Jesus concluded the way he did in verse Number 35. He that has ears, let him hear. You know, that's the same thing he says to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Hey, I just want you to listen. I just want you to attention. I want you to understand the fullness of the life, the joy in life, the absolute ecstasy you can have as a person walking this earth. If you walk with me, he says. Pastor, I beg to say, I would echo our Lord's admonition this morning. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, then join us. Amen. It's not that hard. 